And with something like that, you just shut up and listen. You know, you don't pretend that you know how to do storytelling better than Spielberg. Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Creative Society Animation Podcast. I'm Michael Wakelam. If this is your first time tuning in, our podcast really focuses on conversations with creators, producers, writers, artists from all across the industry, discussing how they got their start and chatting through their career. We have another super interesting episode today and a slight veer from regular guests with David Sheldon Hicks, founder of Territory Studio. David started Territory with his co-founders in 2010 and it's grown to nearly 200 people with offices in London, San Francisco and Barcelona. Territory started out really not focused on character animation, but on animation for screens and user interfaces in feature films. And they've worked on loads of films from Prometheus and Guardians of the Galaxy to Blade Runner, Dune and The Batman. But they also branch out a lot, tackling a wide variety of projects. David and I talked through his career, business building and transitioning from a hands-on creative to a business leader. And we also talk about creative culture. I know you'll really enjoy this one. Before we jump in, though, if you're new to the podcast, I know you'll enjoy going back and listening to some of our previous episodes. We've had some really great guests in this season and the previous season from all across the industry. And please rate or share the podcast if you can. Now let's jump into that conversation with David Sheldon Hicks. Hey, David. Thanks so much for joining me. Nice to meet you. Nice to be here. Thanks for talking to me. Really been looking forward to chatting today. Um, I come from a, a motion design background and uh, I've been an admirer of Territory's work for, for many years. Um, as I mentioned before, I even freelanced for part of Territory years ago with, with Lee and, yeah. uh, and I think with you guys a little. I guess this is a little bit of a departure from our regular guests and, and discussions. You know, we've mostly been centred around character animation as it pertains to storytelling, but Really, we're, we're all about animation in general. And so I, I really thought a chat with you would be a great idea. Your work with Territory is so diverse. So what started out, I guess, very focused and became an, an explosion of growth was this specialism in futuristic user interfaces and heads-up displays and that type of project. And, and it's really grown. But before we get to that, you know, I'm a big believer in the power of biography. So... I want to hit rewind, as we always do, and talk about how you got started down this creative path as early as you like. I know you studied graphic design, but before that, you know, were, were you a creative kid? Yeah, no, I was, I was always drawing, always, always drawing. So, I, you know, born 1979, but kind of really grew up through the 1980s. So, you know, for any, anyone that wants to hit the nostalgia modes, watching things like some of the maybe some of the american shows that were influenced by japanese animation so you you, you think about like thundercats or transformers mm-hmm. or even uh, the lost cities of gold all those sorts of things where i don't know it must have been just in the back of my mind i suddenly realized that there was animation but then there was also more kind of stylized graphic animation i noticed that especially in the thundercats tv series the title sequence was so polished in comparison to the full body of the anime and you know, the full series was still beautifully done, but the title sequence in particular was just like the camera moves and the composition and the snappiness and the animation and the little kind of extra touches, the light glints and all that kind of stuff. Even as a, a kind of a five-year-old kid, there was something something there for me mm. that just grabbed my attention. And then, you know, we, we're lucky in the UK to have Channel 4. And Channel 4 at the time, I think probably when I was hitting, just before I was hitting my teens... They did wonderful kind of behind the scenes 
feature films. So you'd see lots of visual effects and starting to become aware of what, you know, studios like Digital Domain and Industrial Light and Magic were doing by way of animatronics and stop mm. frame animation and, and miniatures and all that kind of stuff. And as somebody who was a, a creator and a maker, you just could not help but be captivated by that. So I suddenly became aware of movie making and that there were people making stuff and creating these images that were already captivating me as a kid growing up through the 1980s, watching Spielberg and George Lucas and, and you know, things like the Goonies and Flight of the Navigator and all those sorts of things. That captured my imagination. There was also wonderful TV series like... Um, like the A-Team, where they idolised making stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, there's always this moment where they'd get captured in a barn and they had this, like, welding gear and and, (laughs) and vans and stuff, and they'd make something out of nothing. And I think there was something special about that era in that we celebrated the creators. We celebrated hard work and making things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's at the back of my brain with all of this as a kid is like, making stuff was cool and and putting in the effort and doing something that other people weren't doing was cool and i don't know if if my kids have that same celebrity in their lives there's not the same kind of idolization of just making stuff mm, it's interesting putting, yeah putting the work in but anyway so that's an aside so so i was definitely influenced by all of those things and then and then Channel 4 also, I think it was Channel 4, it might have been one of the other channels, started broadcasting Studio Ghibli stuff. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, my you know, my my brain exploded at that point to see animation outside of the kind of the UK and the US model that was so different, culturally different. It was opening my mind up to another culture, but it was opening my mind up to just incredible. It was world building, the Puta Castle in the Sky and things like that just incredible world building, but also just just a phenomenal level of craft and artistry. So I knew at that point I I needed to combine my love of drawing and graphic design with um, some form of movement. And and I went through, you know, kind of A-levels and into foundational art. And at foundation, you kind of try lots of different things and then end up choosing a specialism. And I was kind of, (laughs) I think I was just pushed down the road of graphic design, to be honest. And so ended up there, not really totally understanding what graphic design was. And then that was a real journey for me, kind of going into Portsmouth University, just discovering the art of graphic design, but then my just sheer determination to make it move um, Mm. and use it to tell stories and and be maybe a little bit more emotive with graphic design than I'd kind of witnessed. And so my kind of my journey went on from there, really, and had a great time at Portsmouth University, learned a lot learned the power of research and becoming informed before you start designing something. Um, And then kind of got a a scholarship at a German agency or a number of German agencies, one being Meta, another being Pixel Park, worked in Berlin for a while, and then came back to the UK and started working on music commercials and music videos. Yeah, and and then moved on into the film industry after that when kind of the iPod and iTunes came out music video budgets kind of started depleting. And so I kind of, I'd, I'd known that I'd always wanted to work in the film industry in some way. And by chance happened to find some work on Casino Royale. And uh, that was, you know, doing this thing called screen graphics, which I'd never really heard of, but it sounded like a lot of fun. 
And I think it kind of found me as much as I found it in that I always knew that I'd had this kind of left brain, right brain balance to me. And I think my parents thought I was going to become an architect because I, A-levels, I studied maths, physics, art and photography. So there was always this kind of yin and yang going on for me. And in finding screen graphics, there was this need to understand quite technical moment science engineering kind of understand the you know get to the the core of what's going on on this screen but then make it really interesting and engaging and well designed and and becoming a story point so really kind of getting to use both things and that was a real pleasure for me because I was suddenly tapping into you know my kind of natural skill set yeah I mean it's interesting because you don't hear a lot of people talk about title design or noticing title design from a young age. You're probably the first person I've ever spoken to who's, who's been like that, that's, you know, noticed the cartoons, titles, as opposed to the animation itself. Um, so that's really interesting. I mean, obviously you had a love for storytelling and animation, um, but it's really interesting that you then were kind of led down that creative graphic design path and then the two married up eventually. Yeah, so, I mean, because I remember designing characters and designing in the style of Japanese animation doing hundreds and filling hundreds of sketchbooks with character designs. And I think what I loved about character design work is you're kind of, you're distilling a personality and so much of what graphic design is, it's a distilling of an idea. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of pulling it down into a, into an ultimate truth. If you can successfully manage that and and motion graphics and character animation, very much the same thing, you know, it's getting down to the core of something. So you're really efficient with your storytelling. So to me, they're the same, they're the same skill set. but I still watch a lot of character animation, you know, a a Mm. huge amount. It's still my background passion, but what's lovely for me is it's not necessarily my job. So I can still appreciate it from afar yeah, um, yeah, but apply my own, I guess, abilities in graphic design to kind of meld between the two. I, you know, I was massively impassioned by um, the Spider Verse work just because I, for the first time, I saw a studio creating highly polished character animation, but combining it with motion graphics in really kind of unexpected ways, and that really excited me. That reminded me of why I got into motion graphics in the first place, because I remember studios like MK12 and PSYOP, who very early days were combining beautiful character animation with motion graphics. Um, And it felt like a real paradigm shift. It felt like a really exciting moment. And it feels like we're returning to that in kind of big studio Hollywood films now. We're finding finding times to to use that. Definitely. I mean, I I agree. PSYOP has always been that great, combination of of design and and character work in advertising it's it's uh, and i think that now put their foot in the in the door of content creation as well but i think spider-verse not only you know inspired people in, in various industries like you and i but basically inspired the entire animation industry i've heard from people at you know pixar and all the other studios who who were like wow we can we can do that you know um, so it's certainly been inspiring across the board to a lot of people. Yeah, completely. It, it just reminded me that you, you can be brave. You can, you can push the status quo and people are open to it. And it, and it can still be entertainment. You can t- still tell a story. You know, you're not going to lose an audience by doing things like that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, you see that in 
the Mitchells versus Machines, uh, and then the the new DreamWorks film, The Bad Guys, and uh, the the new Puss in Boots. I think has got some of that kind of two D three D animation on top as well, which is really interesting. Well, hopefully it's not a, a stylistic trend. Hopefully it's something that's here to stay because I think there's a lot of the opportunity there. Yeah, definitely. So it wasn't that long, really, that you were freelancing before you decided to um, step out and uh, start Territory. Yeah, so I think I was I was freelancing for about two or three years. I'd I'd worked at a studio called Fold Seven, and I remember Fold Seven. Yeah, lovely, interesting combination of a well. At the time when I was working there with Nick, my business partner, and Lee, who you know, Lee was traditional graphic designer, print print designer. I guess he would describe himself as. Nick was more on the client management side and I was more on the motion side. And we, we'd seen that agency transition from what we thought of as a hands-on design studio to more of an ad agency. And I think in that process, it was, it was a really interesting time to be there and see that happen. But we thought, actually, we want something else from where we're working. And I'd, I'd freelanced at lots of different places. I'd worked at Why Not Associates. I'd worked at a really nice company called Spav and just some really wonderful studios in in the UK and I think I'd freelance for a few in the US as well I'd seen lots of different things that I liked about creative studios but didn't quite combine all the things in the right way for me mm. and I'd probably got ambitions to be a creative director as well you know and it and freelancing is lovely in that you get to try lots of different things but it's not a for me it's not a long-term goal it's not something that you think do I see myself retiring doing this I couldn't answer that question for me personally it's like you know for the next 10 15 years do I see myself freelancing probably not you know I can't sink my teeth into a problem doing this I can learn a lot personally but I can't be effective as a team creative projects at their best are in amongst a team you know drawing on skills that you don't personally have and and seeing a bigger potential than than you can bring to the table alone i knew that a studio was probably on the cards but how to do that was was a different question was a different matter so we set off in this journey and and we kind of said to ourselves wouldn't it be great let's let's see if we can find some projects and then set something up and what i realized is you can't do it half-hearted you can't say oh well i'll freelance some days of the week and then i'll it's like it's all or nothing you can call yourself a collective for a little while if you really really want that just means you haven't become comfortable with the idea that you're actually going to be a studio. But at the end of the day, either you set up a company and employ people or you remain freelance. There's no middle ground, I'm afraid. And you can you can take the two two year long um, journey to discover that or you can kind of just take my word for it. So we managed to land a project with Electronic Arts, a cutscene for Medal of Honor. It was, a, it was a lovely cinematic moment at the start of the game to kind of tee up the story. And we did that on very much a skeleton crew, worked really, really hard. And off the back of that, my business partners had the confidence to kind of leave their day job. And we all started Territory for real. Our first office was in a little muse in Hatton Garden in London. It was just like a little attic room. You could probably squeeze the three of us plus four other freelancers in there which we did for about six months. And then that got uncomfortable. So we asked to use another floor in that building. We were sharing with a friend's agency. Then we outgrew that pretty quickly because we won quite a few different projects. So then we moved to Berry Street. And and I'd say that first year was kind of do or die. It was throw all the hours that you possibly can at it. My wife was incredibly understanding. 
it was the first year of our marriage and she pretty much didn't see me. Oh man. She was being incredibly supportive and it was, yeah, it was just working all the hours. And, and you do that because there's no going back. Like the road behind you is kind of like, I've, I've been there. I've done that. This has to work. Like I have a mortgage to pay. I've got kids on the way. This, there is no, there's no fallback position. Like either we bring in enough work for this to work or I'm in a bit of a trouble spot. I had to learn not only how to do the work, project manage to a degree. And we shared that responsibility between the three of us, but we were all doing a bit of it creatively directing. And that's not as fun as it sounds um, all the time. <laughs> and just, just wearing multiple hats. When you first set up a business, you are wearing all the hats. You are invoicing, you're chasing up on payments. You're being chased by freelancers for payments. You're managing projects and you're trying to find new projects. And it, looking back, it was a very exciting time, but I could I had the energy for that when I was younger and I'm, and I'm glad I, I'm glad I did it when I did it. So I was 30 then. And then we moved to Berry street. We took on some of our first employees. That's when things started feeling a little bit more grown up. And then our first child, Lila was due. And I suddenly realized, Oh crap, I, I'm not going to be here for a period of time. And this thing kind of needs to run itself. And I've been kind of making do with producing things myself. And, you know, we hired some full-time motion designers, 3D artists and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But I can't, I can't, that's not possible. That's not feasible. You know, I need this to be self-running. So the next realization for me was, okay, we need to hire a producer. That happened very quickly. And I, I lucked out. I found someone really good, Sam Hart who did a wonderful job of just stepping in while I wasn't there. We never actually physically met in person. Oh, wow. That was a real step change for us because when I suddenly, when I came back from paternity and I was very disorientated, it hadn't been a, hadn't been a straightforward birth. There was lots of complications going on. But when I came back, suddenly there was this whole new team doing new projects and the thing was kind of running itself to a degree. And I suddenly thought, huh, okay, so bringing in people better than me at other jobs is, is a good thing. And I need to embrace that for, a, for as long as possible. So that was a real moment for me, finding a great producer and that producer. A lot of the lessons beyond that point, it was less about, it's less about how do we get better at doing creative work? So focusing on the work, it's more about how do we get better at hiring great creative talent to do the better work? So focusing on the people and the, studio and less on the work itself to then be able to take on the projects that you want to take on yeah let's just step back to you coming back and and seeing you know that that thing running on its own as a creative i mean i know i've been through this myself no matter how good everyone else is at things you still have this desire to you know learn new software you want to you want to try new things and try new ideas and be hands-on so I don't imagine that was as easy as as uh, coming back and saying, "Oh, it's all it's all good. Let him get on with it." I imagine there was still some transition time there for you, as as far as figuring out your place. Yeah, no, I don't. It's bizarre. So many people have said that, and it's scary before you get to that point. But it's so easy once you're past it. Because I was lucky enough to have paternity to break that up. I didn't have enough time to think about it. My my disorganization almost forced an event that made the tearing of the plaster very easy. You know, yeah, I, I was yeah. distracted with bigger, more important things. 
the, the birth of our first child was far more important than me figuring out my ego, letting go of creativity. In hindsight, that was, I guess, a lucky thing. The work got infinitely better by me stepping away from being hands-on with things. Yeah, I can and, understand that. I've, I've been through that as well. And, and as, as much as you want to you know, be there, if you're delivering something better to the client, then that's a better do thing. I feel, do I feel any less proud of the work because I'm not doing it myself? No. There's, there's no less connection to the creative output. And I, and I think that's because we're very self-aware of promotion mm-hmm. and putting the work out there. And my role now is often ambassador for the studio and, and promoting the great work that the studio is doing. I still feel personally attached to it because I'm celebrating that work on their behalf. You know, my ego is still massaged um, <laughs> just in a more healthy way, I suspect. Yeah, and and I guess in some ways this is a this is another child of yours which is uh, grown up. Yeah, I mean, I ha- I hate I hate comparing the business to my children uh, for obvious for obvious <laughs> reasons. But there are no 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 there are some there are some synergies definitely. You need to not get in their way. You know, you need to not get in the way of their progress because it, it's going to happen whether you like it. They're growing up whether you like it or not. So either you help facilitate that or you just become a blocker. Yeah, it's it's far more rewarding to enable it and then watch it watch it happen. So yeah, I'd agree with that. I would agree with that as, as discomforting as it is. Everything I've heard about Territory's culture is positive. So I'd like to dive into that a little bit. We we talked just before we started recording about, you know, Ed Catmull's book on you know Creativity Inc. on developing a creative business behind the creative, I guess. But we don't often hear about this. You know, there's very few resources out there. So I'd like to just hear a bit more about your approach, not only to building a great place to come to work, but a great culture to thrive in creatively. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the first caveat to all of this is we've never got it figured out. And I think people will challenge me on this at different times in Territory's life cycle. Like we've definitely gone through our painful moments where the culture has been out a step a little bit from a corporate level, we've got it, we've definitely got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why we can always get it back on track is because we own up to our mistakes and we go, yeah, that's with us. We'll take responsibility for that. That wasn't quite right for a period of time. And we now need to, we need to own that mistake and do something about it. Along the way, the culture's not been quite right because the business is go- growing so quickly that either we or everyone in it hasn't had a moment to kind of catch up with where it's got to. Mm. It's tricky that because you want to grow at a pace that makes everyone feel as though they've got a career path. You want to have an environment where they think, yeah, I'm not capped. If I want to become a creative director or if I want to run my own studio, territory is going to be the place that gives me the opportunities to do that. So we want to be the kind of, the kind of studio that is open to new things. If somebody says to me, we want to set up our own games division, we'll be like, yeah, we're up for that. We'll do that with you. We'll, we'll enable that for you. We want people's ambitions to be realized and we want them to, but the kind of the catch all with that is, is everyone okay with growth? You know, you like, it's good on an individual level, but are we all okay with it on a group, on a group level? And different speeds are right for different people. So I think when the the cultures kind of come under a little bit of strain has been when people have wanted certain things, me included, 
but it has also, you know, it's, it's kind of been, I think it's been everyone. We've all wanted certain things, but then you you then suddenly realise the reality of that. There's kind of pain thresholds with the culture where you kind of go from, say, 20 people to 30 people. That is a, oh, that was a bit of a shift. And then when we went from 30 people to 50 people, it wasn't also, a, it wasn't just a cultural shift. It was also a technology one. We needed to start developing our own pipeline and software integration. So that became an investment. When you go from 50 people to 100 people, you need to take HR pretty seriously and talent that, you know, that becomes, becomes a big thing. And then we're, we're kind of going through another shift now from 100 to 200 people. Like, what does that mean? And plus, we've got multiple offices. So that culture question, I guess why I'm flagging that is uh, so I don't get shot down in flames for saying that we've got a wonderful culture all the time. We haven't. We haven't got it figured out all the time. But we know that it's, it's the important thing. Yeah, but I think that's the key, isn't it? Like knowing that that is an imp- the important thing. You know, nobody's ever going to have everything worked out, but knowing it's an important thing and something you continually need to focus on yeah. makes it uh, a priority and makes you better at it than a lot of other people. Yeah, hopefully. Some, well, yeah, hope, <laughs> I, I hope so. I hope so. Like I say, I mean, it's like the work, isn't it? Your Your best project is always the one that you're about to work on. It's it's not it's not the project that you did ten years ago, yeah, um, yeah. In, in your mind. So I think culture is one of those things. It's like it's at an okay point now, but it could be way way better. But it's kind of that struggle that's kind of what makes the job interesting the whole time. Is because you never really get it sussed out. A big thing for us at the moment, culture wise, is you know we're we're about to invest in a brand new building, massive infrastructure investment, team investment, technology investment, all that kind of stuff. And the big question from the team, and rightly so, has been, but do we need a big office now? Like, is is that important? I just go back to the basic logic, which is, are people the most important thing to a studio? And for me, that's like, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. So we believe that culture is incredibly important. Yes, of course. How do you then say that coming together isn't, I don't, I don't understand how we can't, say that for at least part of the week coming together isn't isn't important and especially to creative projects i think so many people focus on well productivity has gone through the roof since we've all been remote like and if you think productivity is the main important thing to a successful creative studio then you've misunderstood what we're doing here i'd have been a banker if i was interested in productivity and you know squeezing every ounce of value out of what we're putting in for me it's about coming together as creatives and doing amazing work it's it's so much of a struggle we don't allow ourselves to say that out loud because we're all worried about losing the the work from home benefits it's okay to have both but i do think you need some of the coming together you know that's what i subscribe to but you're you're so right i mean i don't think we've figured it out yet you know how to how to do everything from home so yeah. yeah what's been great about this time is it's questioned the status quo that's an exciting moment of opportunity actually to go okay it doesn't have to be rigid that's the interesting part about it yeah especially for film work and i think you you know a few years ago there was so much uh, i guess stringent security on films when you're you know, if you were a studio contributing to a big budget film then they didn't want any leaks and all of that and i know you had a, a bunch of hoops most studios do that you have to jump through a lot of that went out the window with the pandemic and 
So how did you handle that, that side of things? I mean, it hasn't gone out the window and I'm not convinced it's gone out the window for much longer. I, I think it will come back. I think it will come back. I think there have been leaks and I think the studios are really worried about it. I think it's a matter of time before, you know, and I, and I totally understand it. I totally get it. They need to protect their their IP. And we try and advise everyone as much as we possibly can here. You know, this this is protected. You need to look after it. And And we've never had a leak. But the bigger you get and the more people you add, there's always that chance. There's always that chance that somebody just doesn't get how mm-hmm. sacred it is to not, I don't know, that the lightsaber's purple on this film or whatever it, you know, whatever the kind of the key moment might be for uh, an Uber fan that would maybe ruin the film watching experience or, or the, you know, the surprise for something um, later on for the actual theatrical release. So I get it. I do totally get it. But I think there's going to be different studios that respond to it in different ways. Some are going to need to be in total lockdown on certain projects. It's a bit like the the working mm. from home uh, situation. There's going to be an amount of flexibility around that, but you still need to put some structure in around it. So let's say it's three days a week versus two days a week, that kind of split. I think it might be the same with certain projects and security levels. For certain projects, absolutely, you know, don't, you can't work from home but for some studio projects it's totally fine it's episodic you know it's maybe less stringent and the fan base is maybe less hardcore um it's going to be less of a spoiler if something if something did get out that isn't an ever-evolving changing situation i suspect and and it's interesting to see that a lot of silicon valley now are encouraging big tech companies are encouraging people back into the office I think it comes back round to no, no business loves spending ridiculous amounts of money on real estate and renting. No, no one, no one would do that if they physically could avoid it. But the the cost against culture is is a significant one. That's really what it all comes down to. Is do we want people to have a sense of belonging and mental health? as well so i just think there's going to be a rebalancing at some point it's probably going to be quite slow though i'd imagine just on growth i guess stepping back to that a little bit did you you know get to a point where you had to take on capital um to no we've always been organic always been organic Um, for you i think nick lee and i put a thousand pounds in each to start off with um so i think that falls under the bootstrapping model (laughs) no we've always believed in the business is successful if it's paying its own way we're always reinvesting the profits back into the business. Nick and I have always just been salaried. We have a fixed salary, which is good for home because it just kind of makes things very, very simple. Don't need to think about it too often. And we always want to make sure that we're putting money back into the business. Now, that isn't the kind of the typical startup mentality. You know, often businesses run at a loss for quite a number of years. We set the business up in a in what you'd call a rainy day. You know, we were just after the banking crash. So we knew that that was going to, that cycle was going to come back around probably a number of times in us opening up our business. So you need to do two things. You need to reinvest in, in innovation. You know, you can't be stagnant as a business. You're going to need to adapt your model along the way. So we always knew that we needed to reinvest in that. We need to reinvest in people. And we needed a rainy day fund 
We needed something to protect the business. So when we hit the pandemic, we made sure we had one of those and it's, you know, it's looked after us, it's protected us. So no, we, we don't, and we also didn't want to lose any kind of control because we didn't know totally what the business was going to be at the beginning. So to look an investor in the eye and say, it's going to be this and it's going to grow to that. I, I wanted some time to discover that for myself. I didn't want to have to be answering to anyone and telling them, oh, we're doing this thing for that reason. And the strings that come with those investments, I think is it's fine for certain types of business, but for creative services, I think it it could have caused us problems. I don't know. I don't know the other model because I've never worked that way. But but you're also, you know, you you are continually growing and changing um, from the looks of things. So it's uh, certainly good to have that flexibility. <laughs> We come up with lots of new shiny ideas all the time. Um, and if I had to check, run that past somebody, I'd, I'd be less excited about the business. I think it's nice to be able to move quickly, do things, try them out, let them fail, be okay with that, move on to the next, move on to the next thing. We've, we've had a number of kind of international expansion, not failures, just they didn't quite happen at that moment. But we learned so much from that, that, you know, when San Francisco set up, it was a roaring success and we know why it was a roaring success because of some of the other things that we tried and that we know some of our other international expansion plans at the moment are going to be going to be another great success because of other things that we tried and tested quite quietly before those moments that you have to build in for failure. And that, I guess that's what I mean about investing in innovation. You, you've got to have a few risks here and there. They're educated and they're not going to bring the business down but they're, they're worth the lesson. It might be a painful lesson or it might be a su- surprise success, but they're, they're worth doing it for that reason. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you do a lot of R&D and I don't know if we've got time to get into all of that. And also, I mean, you guys have worked on just so many great films from Blade Runner, Bond, Ex Machina to you know big Marvel films and the recent Batman and June. We can't get into to very much of that at all because of time, but I'd like to just uh, touch on a couple of, areas in regards to projects and you know the first is being how you approach your work in films in regards to the narrative and characters you know going back to your your young self and being so interested in the storytelling and the narrative um, because they're often so different you know from the playfulness of you know Guardians of the Galaxy and the you know fun energy of Ready Player One which you must have loved being an 80s kid um, you know to the darker tones of of Blade Runner or the Batman, you know, how do you approach that? I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to take credit, but um, each director has their own unique way of approaching the work. I think we approach things with an open mind. It's not, we have a house style and this is how it's going to be done. Well, you definitely don't have a house style, do you? I mean, it's you, no, you're re- no, reinventing no. all the time. Yeah, I think it's, it's about not being rigid and it's also not being rigid about your creative process. Often the the best film projects that we work on, they help us question the way in which we approach a project, which I think can be really unsettling for a lot of creative studios. But we've built up a team and a mindset that is open to that. Um, Sometimes it can be pretty pretty painful. On the Batman, you know, that was a a real kind of interesting project because we were on it for on-set graphics. We were within the art department working with James Chinland. And then we were working with Dan Lemon and the VFX team on the post side of things and working with directly with Matt Reeves. And there were so many nuanced story moments that you're trying to thread together across lots of different technologies and lots of different story beats. 
And Matt really cared about everything, right? Really, really cared about everything. So you were constantly shifting between um, different modes of thought to kind of keep pace with such a smart, intelligent, uh, creative mind. I mean, that's often the, the biggest bit is kind of tuning into their mindset. With Stephen on Ready Player One, we kind of kind of got there pretty quickly, kind of understood how he worked and the way in which we should approach the project. Stylistically, we hit the, you know, with style frames, we got there pretty quickly. Then it was just all about for Stephen just hitting those story beats. And with something like that, you just shut up and listen. You know, yeah. you don't pretend that you know how to do storytelling better than Spielberg. You just use it as like a really wonderful education, you know, and you contribute through graphic design. And, and it's as simple as that. It's, it's, it's very straightforward. With Denis Villeneuve, he opened up our mind to the creative process and how, how we should approach the project. The same with Patrice on um, Dune. You know, they, they both work in a similar way, which is not really interested in the final result. I'm more interested in the way that you're going to approach this work, kind of the deeper creative process. They're wonderful in that respect, more, more looking at the creative psychology of the project. You just bloody listen. Just listen yeah. to people. Just stop trying to show people how wonderful you are and just listen because you are working with some of the greatest creative minds that are on the face of the planet right now. Just get out of their way and be in service to that story. So I think an element of humbleness and openness to what you're about to touch is the best way to, um, to approach it, really. Just be grateful to be a part of a wonderful creative project. Yeah, it's really good, really interesting. Everyone should check out territorystudio.com to, to look through your work because you're really good at documenting your work on the site. I think that's something you've always done well, being able to put your case studies there and, and breaking down the work that you do. But you do such a wide variety and you continue to do, you know, obviously film, but experiential branding and advertising. And, and you've even brought your UI expertise into real world products, which is really interesting. Do you have separate teams for, for each thing uh, or you just kind of assemble the best team for the job or is it siloed at all? No, I mean, loosely in our heads, we have creative skill sets that I guess gravitate around three clear departments, but they all intermingle. I guess historically, the, the longest running department is the motion design team, motion graphics, motion design. So we have that as, I guess, a core skill set. We then have slightly newer, but still fairly well-established visual effects team. So, you know, Nuke and Houdini and Maya and all that kind of stuff. And then we have a kind of a younger digital team that are doing real world digital applications. But all of that intermingles and it all intermingles via creative tech, you know, being Unreal, Unity, Haptics, VR, AR, Immersive. That creative tech layer just seems to join everything up along with our pipeline team who are just absolutely amazing. There's a lot of cross-conversation between all of those things. Because if you look at something like the GM Cadillac Lyric work that we did, uh, the in-car interface work, there's definitely drawing upon our motion graphics legacy, but also some real heavy lifting on the UI and the UX, some proper functional user experience going on. We're doing a lot more in terms of development as well now, in terms of actual implementation in, in engine. So it's wonderfully broad in that respect. But there is a, I mean, there's definitely a common thread around us wanting to lead in, in world building of some description, whether that's, you know, digital worlds for a car brands, you know, we're doing a lot of work in the metaverse, unsurprisingly at the moment, brands like Artifact and Nike and lots of fashion brands, cosmetics and all that sort of thing. 
and I think we're kind of we were always positioning ourselves for this world that was going to come through and it's finally here. Mm-hmm. We always knew that always hoping that mixed reality was going to be a truth, which is why we played into it so much in feature films. And we've been lucky to be a part of a storyteller's impression of what that world could be. Now we're actually working with brands and technology brands to look at bringing that into reality, really. Uh, So it's quite, quite an exciting moment for us as a studio to be across both. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, obviously you're not afraid of um, stepping outside. Maybe you don't have a comfort zone because you, you try so many new things. I mean, for instance, the mank work that you did was really interesting. You were also, I saw you were developing a, a, a kid series pitch a couple of years ago called Baby Big Guns. So do you have some creative itches that you're looking to scratch, I guess, both personally and business-wise for Territory? Personally, I'd love to be doing far more character animation. Going back to that idea that we talked about, kind of combining motion graphics and character animation, I think that's the space that we want to develop over the next few years. I think there's an opportunity there. I think doing more stuff in the creative tech space is huge for us because it's so all-encompassing. If you think about virtual production like the work we did with Mank or real-time applications or the metaverse or NFTs or just helping brands and entertainment come together more, I just think there's so much to happen there i honestly can't predict where the technology's head next it's moving too fast i just know that if i bring enough of the right minds together they'll come up with some great solutions i think it's being less reactive to what the future could be it's kind of like properly thinking about where do we you know if, if blade runners taught us anything it's like don't be reactive to circumstance try and control it a little bit more and think about what you what you're doing so it kind of gets bigger in that respect but um, yeah, bringing creativity and technology together for storytelling is always going to be of interest to us, I think. And I think automotive and, and tech brands and entertainment brands are going to collide more and more. I think we're kind of uniquely positioned for that, which is pretty fun. I like the idea of being in those, in those spaces. Lastly, as a, I guess, an individual freelancer, your first project was Casino Royale. And then how did it feel coming full circle and having territory work on uh, Daniel Craig's last outing? No time. Yeah, that was, that was a nice bookend for me personally. I was far more hands-on with Casino Royale uh, than I was with No Time to Die. But, you know, that was a great moment. and, And I hope we can work more with the Bond franchise. It's an amazing juncture. I'll, I'll be interested to see what happens next. For me, there's so many different ways that you could take it and beyond just the feature films. You know, I think there's lots of other things to explore. But yeah, personally for me, that was a kind of nice full stop moment in my kind of connection to that creative franchise. So um, yeah, thank you for spotting that. David, it's been a real pleasure to chat today. Thanks, thanks so much for the time and uh, wishing you all the best. Oh, thanks very much. Real pleasure to be a part of this. Thanks for joining me. I hope you really enjoyed that chat. If you'd like to get in touch or to shoot us any feedback, then please email podcast at thecreatorsociety.org. You can find me on LinkedIn and other socials. As mentioned at the top, please subscribe, like, or share the podcast if you're enjoying it. Thanks to Rich Dickerson for the music, Mike Rocha for the mix, and our exec producer, Eric Miller. Thanks again. See you next time.